Today's sermon text comes out of the book of Acts, chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Acts, chapter 25. The text reads like this. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they had stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I, answer, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody, custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. 
So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man with whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable, unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. We continue our series in the book of Acts tonight, and the point of our passage is all who live, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I know you wish that weren't the point of the passage tonight, but one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is because I want to say what the Word says and not what we want to hear. Imagine yourself, writes one author, at Timothy's side as he receives a letter from the Apostle Paul, the letter that will be Paul's last. You notice Timothy's hands slightly trembling as he breaks the seal and opens the parchment to read. He almost cradles the letter as though his gentleness with it will somehow be conveyed to its author, now chained in a cold Roman dungeon. These are written words that Timothy knows he will return to often in order to carefully obey the apostle's guidance. But for now, he reads quickly, hungering especially for personal news from his father in the faith. Near the end of the letter, Timothy slows his pace. He can almost hear the encouraging voice of Paul say, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Then his eyes take in this line, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. For years, Timothy has pushed aside the thought of losing Paul, this man who has been like a father, this friend and mentor who has guided and instructed the young leader. How could Timothy go on ministering without Paul's reassuring words, his confidence, his prayers? Timothy stops reading to brush away his tears. How can he wallow in grief when his old friend faces death so boldly? I have fought the good fight, Paul writes. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, that so powerfully captures a fictional moment toward the end of the Apostle Paul's life. But here in Acts 25, we have the beginning of the end of Paul's Life. You heard from our reading that Paul is falsely accused and he responds by appealing to Caesar. Festus, the new governor of Caesarea, grants 
his request. And so soon Paul will be sent off to Rome. And there in Rome, Paul will win the good fight of faith. He'll finish the race. He'll keep the faith even as his head is severed from his body. Acts chapter 25 is the beginning of the end of the Apostle Paul's life. Why? Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's why. Now, the cost of following Jesus will obviously vary from place to place, time to time, culture to culture. Things are not looking great, are they, in the, in the United Kingdom? But we don't need to worry about being thrown to lions in a Roman Colosseum or being used as a human torch in one of Emperor Nero's uh, dinner parties. The fact, though, is it is impossible to live for Christ in an antichrist world without facing at least some measure of opposition. And so to those of you who, who actually don't experience any pushback at all because you are afraid to stand for Christ, I want to encourage you this evening, God can make you brave. If you want him to, God can make you as bold as a lion. He can make warriors out of shriveled up leaves. The reason the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might is because naturally we are not strong. Fear comes easily. Courage comes hard. And it's why the most frequent command in the Bible is fear not God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And yet when uphold, upheld by his omnipotent hand, you can stand. You can stand firm. So listen, don't count yourself out of this message. Count yourself in by the grace of God. And if you are a little bit fuzzy on what's been going on in Acts in recent times, let me remind you, you remember the religious establishment. They'd seized Paul in the temple. He was sent to Caesarea under the cover of darkness and under the protection of Rome. Uh, in the last passage, he argued his case before Felix, the, the governor of Caesarea. Then he was then disposed, replaced by Festus. And so we read in verse 1 again, look there with me in Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province... And that was, the, that was of Caesarea, by the way, where Paul was imprisoned. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he, be, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And from there, it's not pleasant. From there, it's not pretty because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And first we see, despite their innocence, despite their innocence, look at verse 7 
It says, when he, Paul, had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar you shall go. Now, we don't have a record of their accusations against Paul, but judging by his defense in verse 8, it's probably safe to assume that they were mixing together both religious and political accusations to make Paul out to be a threat to Caesar. That was the the safest bet, the quickest way that, that they could get Paul killed off. And you can almost picture the Apostle Paul with his accusers surrounding him, berating him, acting like the animals in Acts 22, piling up their accusations. And then you picture Paul stood in the middle of them with a peace that surpasses that surpassed understanding. And the reality is, friends, is that that is the power of a clear conscience. A clear conscience is both a priceless thing and a costly thing. A clear conscience unsettles the guilty conscience. And when that happens, the guilty conscience will either repent or rage. And the latter of the two is is happening here in Acts 25. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted despite their innocence. Despite their clear conscience. But I want to make what might sound like a little bit of an unusual point of application to us. At this point tonight, and it's this, friends, don't go looking for opposition as a believer. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because we need to remember why Paul was in the situation he was here in Acts 25. Do you remember this whole mess began chapters ago when Paul was in the temple of Jerusalem trying to maintain Christian unity? So in other words, Paul was doing what he had been called to do as a disciple, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and persecution came to him. Paul didn't go looking for persecution. And I say that to us tonight because although most believers are probably quite sheepish or quite hesitant to share their faith with unbelievers, there are those who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, those who who crave opposition. And they, they look to opposition to feel validated as a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are those who are looking for a fight. They are those who are are looking for controversy because they want opposition to make them feel like a legitimate Christian. But friend, you just make it your aim to be found faithful, not contentious. And if opposition comes your way, then so be it. 
But friends, you just do what Jesus has called you to do. Love your family. Read God's word for your soul and for their soul. Devote yourself to prayer. Commit yourself to the local church. Serve your neighbors. Love your classmates. Befriend your colleagues. And if opposition comes, stand firm. But friends, avoid at all costs riling up the world to pat yourself on the back for being a martyr. If you have that bent, listen, you don't need persecution to validate you as a Christian. Jesus has already validated you. He knows all his own. He knows the hope that he has called you to. And so let the Holy Spirit alone bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Don't ask persecution to do what only God in Christ can do. You think of of Peter in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Gospel of John tells us Simon Peter, had a, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? You see, Jesus doesn't need us to fight for him. Jesus fights for us. Jesus doesn't need us to stand And come to his aid. Jesus comes to our aid. And he's the one that keeps us in perfect peace. When we're stayed on him amid conflict. And so don't look to martyrdom. To to make you feel like a real Christian. Instead walk with Jesus to feel like a real Christian. Don't seek out abuse to make you feel like a real Christian. Walk with the one who was abused for you. And don't look to God's enemies to validate you. Look to God to validate you. Be faithful in season and out of season. And if opposition comes, stand firm and stick to your guns. And so all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First, despite their innocence, but then second, for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. Look at verse 13. Again, it says, now when some days have passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, who by the way was Agrippa's sister, uh, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and uh, ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted for Jesus' sake. Some might cloak their hostility in causes like tolerance or diversity or politics or whatever else, but underneath it all is a resistance to Jesus Christ. Festus could see it. All of the accusations that the leaders brought against Paul fell flat on their face, and what arose was the carpenter from Nazareth. One called Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And friends, nothing has changed. Jesus is still the great divider of men. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus will only accept complete surrender. And when Jesus gets complete surrender, everything about a believer's life begins to swim heavenward. And those who are swimming in the opposite direction can't help but noticing and can't help but be provoked and convicted. And so if Jesus is the great divider of men, the question for us tonight is this, whose side are you on? Who are you standing with? On whose half do you stand with Jesus or with Jesus' enemies? And if Jesus will only accept complete surrender, then friend, give it all to him. Hold nothing back. From the oldest to the very youngest in the room, I call you today to take your stand with Jesus Christ. I call you to die in order to live in him. I call you to repent of sin and receive Christ's righteousness. And to stop resisting Jesus and start yielding to Jesus. And to leave the kingdom of darkness and to enter the kingdom of light. If Jesus demands complete allegiance, then give it all to him because he is worth it all. And if I'm speaking to you tonight, I want to make two promises to you. Promise number one, following Jesus Christ will cost you everything. Following Jesus will cost you everything. He said in Luke chapter 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. They're the terms. They're the conditions. One of the men that God has used to speak so powerfully into my life opened a sermon with this powerful anecdote some time ago. He said, in a former life, I used to play college football. And by college, he means university. And by football, he means the game you play with your hands, not your feet. So speak to Michael after if that makes no sense to you. 
And he said, I, I played college football for four years at Texas Tech University. I was given a full scholarship, which paid for everything. The only person happier than me was my father. For the next four years, everything was paid in full. My tuition was free. My books were free. My room was free. My meals were free. My laundry was free. But it cost me everything. I had two practices a day in 40 degree heat. You could stand on one side of the field and look to the goal at the other end of the field and could hardly be able to see the goal for all of the heat that was rising. The coaches would kill us. If you ever missed a lesson, you were on the field at 6 a.m. the next morning running the stadium stairs. We did every kind of weightlifting, every kind of gymnastics. The players would even practice fighting one another. I was hit so hard that I was numb and couldn't even feel the next hit. I spent one term on crutches. Everything for four years was free, but it cost me everything. And he opened with that story to to make this point. Salvation in Jesus Christ is free. But following Jesus day to day will cost you everything. Jesus died under the weight of the wrath of God on the cross so that now we can freely receive the the righteousness of Christ all by faith apart from works of the law. But following him will cost you everything. We're called to be light in a world that loves darkness. We're called to preserve what is good in a world that calls good evil and evil good. We're called to self-denial in a world that idolizes self-fulfillment. We're called to be sheep in the midst of wolves. We're called to follow a crucified king as we carry our crosses to our place of crucifixion. Promise number one, it will cost you everything. But promise number two, you will not Regret it because Jesus is worth it all. Jesus is worth it all. The one who died for us is worth our lives. And he's worth every beating we could ever take. He's worth every opportunity we could turn down. He's worth every loss we could suffer. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I opened my sermon a couple of weeks ago with an illustration from Hugh Latimer's life. And I want to close with another one of those tonight. When Bloody Mary became Queen of England in 1553, she sought to rid the country of churches like ours and pastors like me. And so one of her first moves was seeking to uh, kill Bishop Hugh Latimer and Bishop Nicholas Ridley. Both of them preached the gospel. They were burnt at the stake 16th of October 1555. And as Ridley was being tied to the stake, he prayed these words, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a believer of thee, even unto death. 
I plead with thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. And as the flames rose around Latimer, this is how he encouraged Ridley, who was just beside him. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And friends, if they could be of good comfort, and if they could play the man, then so can we. Even though all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Despite their innocence and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Why don't we pray?